Have you ever been bungee jumping? Or are you a by-the-book rules follower? Have you ever used the expression, it's always better to ask forgiveness than permission? Your answers to these questions speak to your perceptions of risk, and they have significant bearing on the types of social engineering approaches to which you are vulnerable. On this episode, I am welcoming back my favorite former co-host, Dr. James Norrie. He's the founder and CEO of CyberCon IQ, and we're going to discuss how CyberCon IQ is disrupting cybersecurity training. We'll be right back. James, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I'm so welcome happy back to, to your be own here. Studio. Uh, yeah, in my own studio recording a podcast with, you know, one of my favorite co-hosts. So there you go. Great yeah, to be back. So this is where I I, I uh, IQ for you started mm-hmm. and then WMD is a spin-off from that because we were having so much fun together and you got too busy, but I wanted to keep on going. I'm sorry. We are a little busy. Yeah. So tell me about what you've been up to because Cybercon IQ has really been taking off. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. It's, it's so amazing for us that the market is rapidly moving towards where we would have been seen as really innovative two Mm -hmm. years ago. I think now we're becoming almost mainstream. People are beginning to grasp finally, finally, Tammy, that the human factor stuff is the unpredictable, big, hairy, audacious problem we've all got to fix, right? Because you can't program humans. And so we feel the market moving towards approaches that we're um, clearly always going to deliver more value in terms of voluntary on the job behavior change by an individual employee because they feel respected now as part of the solution to the problem rather than being the problem. So yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a great time to be doing the work we do. So it's, it's funny, you know, of course our students have you as a teacher and they have me as a teacher. And um, yesterday we were in emerging technology and we're talking about blockchain Mm -hmm. and one of the groups of students identified all these different methods that blockchain gets hacked. And every single one of them was about stealing people's credentials and using all these various social engineering techniques. Um, because, of course, what, what's the word on this? A blockchain can't be hacked. Right. Well, yeah. it, it can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. just you don't hack it through the software. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, we both do this, I think, pretty consistently with our students. We want them to understand that the former use of the term cybersecurity encompassed primarily a technical view of a particular set of contagions, viruses, bots, all the stuff we're talking about, you know, there it was. And so when you treated cybersecurity as a technical issue, this led to this conclusion that if you could prevent something from being technically hacked, that you'd solve the issue. We talked about this yesterday in class as well. Take DocuSign. DocuSign is an innocent, innocuous application that we all use all the time. All right. And we all use it all the time. Right. And right. what's really cool about that is using hashes, it embeds something right into the document. So the integrity of the document is not in question. So we understand that the technology has created a, s- a scenario where the document is secure. And if it's changed, then the hash will tell you that it's been modified. And, and so you, you know the document's been hacked. That's not the thing you need to worry about. You need to worry about the person who is socially engineered and who gives your DocuSign credentials to a crook, <laughs> exposing all of your private and confidential <laughs> agreements. And by the way, adding and deleting users to your 
your own DocuSign <laughs> account. And I'm like, what do people not get about this? But this is where we're we're yeah. lacking. And mm-hmm. cybersecurity is not a technical issue. Nope. It is a risk and organizational behavior issue. And it has a lot to do with the calculus of what an organization is doing in enterprise risk management that includes the technical components of cybersecurity, but overlays them with what you and I know are the human factors issues. Right. And, and I always go a little step further even than that and call it a competitive strategic advantage issue. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's the kind of research that I've been trying. We, we finally just got an article accepted. Yay, I'm very congratulations. And it was about cybersecurity as a strategic advantage and how you can use it to, to create. And, and that's if you're not a cybersecurity company, how can you embed create that as a as a core process and a core capability within your company to make yeah. yourself more robust. Well, and one of the ways is by having stronger stronger human security, right? Stronger yeah. human behavior. And that well, brings and us back to you. Well, let, well, let's linger there for a second because it's, it's interesting you should say that. We were exploring recently in product development. And the important thing about the human factors risk is that humans have a tendency to want to deflect their own accountability, right? They, they, they don't want Cognitive to be responsible. Dissonance. There you go. So, so they know that they are part of the problem. Let's use banking as an example. So a, a particular large bank and they're hacked all the time and they're on the frequently cited as a target of criminals because they've got such a wide you know, brand and, and footprint in the market and so on. So if you're a client of that bank and you get hacked, you, your first instinct is to blame it on the bank. Makes mm-hmm. some sense, right? right? Yet the underlying notions of that are really quite complex because what we're dealing with is you have two parties. You have the employee at the bank who's trying to do a good job, wants to make the clients happy. They're paid to get clients' problems solved and so on. So you have the bank explaining to the employee that they have to do all that, but they have to do that safely and they have to find a way to respect banks' policies and procedures and, well, making the client satisfied. Okay. Then you have the client over here, and the client's going to vary in the degree of accountability and knowledge they have about how their own behavior is contributing to the risk that I'm about to describe. Okay, so here you have a well-intentioned bank employee trying to remain compliant while doing their job. And you have, let's just use as an example, Mr. Jones. Not, we don't use Mrs. Jones. We use Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones is of a certain age, and perhaps he's not all that technically savvy, right? Uh, some total of his engagement might be, you know, um, lurking on his grandkids' Facebook pages. So he's just not a very sophisticated user. So, of course, Mr. Jones just wants his problem fixed. So he asks the employee to do something that puts both the bank and the and customer at risk. At okay. Risk. So we have the motivations around each party wanting to approach this from their own vantage point and their own perspective. They each want to do the right thing. So we're assuming that they are intending to be both of them good and loyal. They're not trying to create risk. And in, in trying to fix this problem, they each put the other at risk. Now something happens. Who's to blame? And this becomes where we get into the problem. So the bank is not going to be able to fix the problem if it's, in fact, the customer's responsibility. So let's take a man-in-the-middle deviation or let's take a credential compromise. Let's take something where, quite frankly, that turns out to be the client's issue. But the, the client is clearly going to blame the bank. So now you have this unbelievable situation where neither intended to create this, and we call these two respective individuals, we call these pathways to compliance now. So we are all equipped to deal with pathways to compromise. That's when the bad guys are out there, Tammy, and they're trying to, but now we're dealing with no bad guy. 
We're right. dealing with two well-intentioned parties mm-hmm. who will not do what they both need to do to keep each other safe. And so this is the the next level of engagement we're thinking about as a company. We talk about this on the Human Defense Platform. Is, so so you you were talking about the, the bank, yeah. and, and it triggered a, a story that I heard just recently from a friend of mine who is the uh, – I think he's the VP of IT at one of the one of the colleges in the area, yeah. and he was telling me about. <laughs> so, recently in our two factor authentication at York, we've had to start entering a, a code that confirms right. that we're actually looking at something. Yep. Well, two factor authentication, um, right? Classic stuff. So, so the two they had implemented two factor authentication at this college, and it's not a, it's not York, um, it is it's another, <coughs> and uh, one of the employees was sitting on her couch one night. And the the thing came up, the authenticator, it said, you know, can, can did you try to log on? And she goes, yeah. Oops. So she, somebody, somebody had logged into her account. She wasn't actually sitting at her computer. She was watching TV, but her, her phone popped up with two-factor authentication and she hit yes. And then the person who got into her school account went into her personnel thing, changed all of her information for her banking information yep. so that when her payroll went, it yep. went to this other account and she still doesn't, none the wiser payday comes and she doesn't get paid. There's a, and there's the trigger. Yeah. And so she goes and she complains to the call and she says, well, I didn't get paid. And they said, yeah, you did here, right here. Here's all the information, but I didn't, but I didn't get paid. Well, yeah, you did. It, it, here it is. It went to end. Well, that's not my bank account. <laughs> well, according to this, you changed your bank account information on such and such a day, but I didn't do that. Well, according to all of this, you you did the two factor authentication went through everything else. Now the IT, the the friend of mine who's in IT, he says, my perspective. I said, I'm going to guess your perspective is the same as mine. She should have had to go without her paycheck that month. <laughs> well, and in some organizations, by the way, that would be the conclusion. This what you just <laughs> described is a perfect, uh-huh. perfect example of what I'm talking about here. But the school paid. Uh, the school paid well, her a second time, I, and and of then course. A, and and you know, because every employer, employer but sure, every employer is going to have his their concern own. was that this was going to set a precedent for oh, you don't know, it doesn't really matter if you screw up because well, the college will cover you. Right. So. Uh, I mean, every employer, every organization is going to have its own take on that particular transaction, oh. shall we say. Um, but, they but now we have to enter that number. So that would have stopped her. That, that, well, that new thing probably would, would have, have. She wouldn't have had the number in front of her because she wasn't on her computer. Right. So maybe. But I'm going to suggest that I think what we're dealing with back to the human factors and human uh-huh. behavior is what are the motivations of the two sides of that equation to both recognize that they're both contributing to the problem? So of course the college turns on two factor authentication, believing that that is a safe way to make sure that people are who they are, but that only works if the people who are then claiming to to actually do that, follow the intended idea of two factor, which is, are you sure this is you cannot have a distracted in the moment reply of yes, (laughs) without defeating the entire point of the technology of, of two FA. So, and that's, what's really important. I think for your listeners is we're dealing here with human behavior, human motivation and human consequence. So that employee wasn't paid well, they were paid right. in quotes. They were paid. <laughs> they were just, paid twice, they actually. They were paid twice, actually. <laughs> right. So this becomes exactly what we're talking about. And this we're studying this in great detail because I think until we as an as a society 
begin to take this seriously and understand that because humans aren't programmable, hum, humans make mistakes, humans do and don't do things, they have different motivations. We all have agency, right? We, mm-hmm. we, it's the basic psychological concept. Mm-hmm. We are empowered as humans to make our own choices. Mm-hmm. Therefore, at what point in a transaction like that do we draw the line and do we ha- actually have to decide who is responsible for what happened? Who was it that made the mistake that allowed that particular? I would suggest that many people would look at it and say, well, the employee. But I would also suggest that the employer also probably has some accountability because did we just implement 2FA or did we explain in some detail that's comprehensible why we did this? And this is what's missing. The incentive around knowledge has to be, I'm curious why we decided to put this in place at this moment today, why suddenly when you and I went to your college to log in, why we suddenly had to set up Microsoft two-factor authentication and put in a code, and why is that extra step necessary? Because we all need to buy in, you know? Organizational change. Well, we you introduced two factor authentication, and there was no training. Right, that's and and so so this was the conversation, continuing the conversation, the same story. Um, The college had offered training, but not required training, and so when it was offered but not required, many people didn't do it. Heck, when it's required, many of us don't do it. <laughs> well, can we step up even beyond and, that and issue? So and so he's and so the 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 person that I'm talking about, he had said, "Well, all right, so yeah, we'll pay, we'll get you pay yeah. him a second time, but let's require that that person go to training so they understand what the, what happened and why they need to be more careful and everything you know, else." But let's extend let's extend it because it it really is fascinating to me. I'll guarantee you the training that was offered was how to use two factor. So. It's going to show them screenshots of what they expect, and uh-huh. here's what you have to do, and you have to type yes. I don't even think Where? we got that. We just got told it was going to be turned on. Right. So my point is, when we say training, that, that there's a danger. Mm-hmm. The training is actually probably on the 2FA yeah. technology in the interface. But I'm I'm talking about a really different problem. What What's is the, the incentive? There you go. What's the purpose? What is of the it? incentive of the human right. who's and on that's the receiving what he, end? That's the training he had wanted to implement, Absolutely. and the college said, "No, we're not, not going to do that." that. <laughs> right. And, but that's the problem. And the problem is that the incentive for somebody to make a voluntary change in how they perceive and behave right. requires knowledge about why this is good for them, why right. this makes sense, what they're trying to protect. What's in it for me? What's in? You know, it's basic psychology. <laughs> that's right. It's basic psychology. <laughs> All right, so, you know, this is a good time for a break, and we will do that right now. So I'm here talking with my favorite co-host and colleague, James Norrie. Now, favorite co-host or only ever co-host now, you know, because that's sort of like my mom saying that I'm her favorite child, her favorite oldest child. Right? Oh, this is, well, yeah. you know, my daughter's my favorite child. She's my only child. <laughs> <laughs> See, that doesn't make it any less true. I understand. Thank you. Because <laughs> you can't have a favorite child because you've got more than one. I, yes, I do. I <laughs> it's to, illegal yeah. for you to have a favorite oh, oh. child. If you're listening, I love you both. You know, it's a, it's a, I love everybody yeah, the same, same just yeah. differently. Right, exactly. <laughs> Equity, not equal. Right. Anyway, absolutely. And, and which brings us to trade offs. Okay, because that's kind of what we're talking about. We sure are. Humans make trade-offs all the time. And and when it comes to security, um, one of the conversations that I, I've had before is this idea of um, well, the fir- one of the first conferences, I, 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 they sent me papers, and it was mm. all about um, punishing employees if they made a mistake in cybersecurity. Mm. Mm. And, and, it, and 
it was, I don't know if it's still this popular, but about six years ago, this was like one of the most popular, popular theories out there was that there should be basically punishment when you screwed up and that, you know, lots of stick would fix the problem. Right. And of course we don't use the term punishment frequently, make ourselves feel better. It's consequences or consequences management or, <laughs> you know, um, that, that was, whatever, no, this was Escala- actually, escalating this was, discipline. We have all kinds of wonderful catchwords for consequences and punishment, but anyway. So when we talk about risk and I, and I think I've probably said this to you, if not on the air, I've said it to you personally. Um, one of the problems with consequences has to do with how much, cognitive duress we can handle being under um, because you can't live hypervigilant for long periods of time. In fact, when I was deployed in, in Jordan, um, when you're deployed, they give you a, a, an OPSEC briefing to remind you that you have to be careful about every two to three weeks right? because your brain adapts to whatever the environment is. And so it is difficult to remain hypervigilant because you just begin to adjust to whatever's there. And so cybersecurity, right? You can't have everybody, the sky's falling, the sky's falling, the sky's falling all the time, my right? My favorite topic. You've hit my favorite topic, which I wrote about in my last book called CyberCon. So we wrote about this very thing. That low-level stasis of constant fear about everybody's trying to hack me. And if I or just COVID-19 or, 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 or whatever, whatever it was, right? right? But but stick just to the basics of cybersecurity. If you constantly are afraid, then your response is to try to get out of those conditions or to give up and say, you know what? Uh, Doesn't matter what I do. At some point I'm going to get hacked. Right. Okay. Now, so then fear is a counterproductive choice. It's not, it, it's right. not a good choice because the trade-off is Lower compliance, not higher compliance. So fear will give you a temporary boost in compliance, but it's not sustainable. It is not a change in habits. It's not a change in um, instincts and impulses. And this is why I think psychology has so much to offer cybersecurity. When you deal with people and turn them into part of the solution and you re-educate them around why they feel that way, what they can do about it. How can we empower them? What can we do to create conditions under which they don't feel afraid, but they actually will willfully go into a situation assessing its risk and dealing with it where the choices and the trade-offs they make between risk and reward are there. So example, I watched on the TV yesterday. You're going to laugh. Okay. What did you watch? Local news. Okay. Now you, uh, advice <laughs> okay. to, to readers, news. not usually worth it, but you know, Hey, at least I had a glass of wine in my hand. So I'm watching the local news and here is the story about some poor woman who had been contacted because she had won the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. Okay, so classic PCHN. Now this one is this one is a, a rerun. It's been around forever, and okay. we're seeing it come back. So Tammy, you get this innocent email that says, "Oh, you're the winner of the PCH sweepstakes, and you have to choose how much you would like to win." With that send up any red flags. Just answer the questions <laughs> like an attorney. So I'm, I'm posing, will the witness answer the question? Would that send up some flags? Yes, it would send up flags. <laughs> okay. Well, in this particular case, it didn't. The next paragraph says you can pick your winnings in $50,000 increments. Any flags on your side? Continuing to be. Great. Yes. So didn't raise any flags for this, this victim. And then the third one said, all you have to do is send $1,000 in gift cards per $50,000 prize money you want, and we'll be right there to give you your lottery winnings. Like, okay. Now- If you were here, you'd see my faces trade, in both of my hands, like, and I'm crying for this individual. This is trade-offs. Okay, so uh, trade-offs. Okay, so a couple things. If the person is feeling financially vulnerable, 
mm-hmm. and afraid. I could see this as being some kind of dangling lifeline, and maybe that overwhelmed her judgment. I don't know. But who would possibly have not heard by now? Because there's scheme after scheme after scheme out there that follows this particular architecture, this and, threat and, architecture. And while we're on this subject, um, if you happened to be wondering where you could find out about these things, AARP actually mm-hmm. has a great resource for folks who are trying to find out what the latest scams are against um, well, against anyone, but particularly against people that are in the retired set. Right. And you can also get tons of information on current threats from IC3, which is a, um, co-sponsored by DHS and the FBI. So the Internet Crime Reporting Center. And so there's lots of places you can get this. But So so if, like me, you're <coughs> resisting acknowledging that you can be on the AARP membership roles. <laughs> Speaking of trade-offs and choices. <laughs> right. Uh, but so go back to this victim. So I'm thinking, all right, whatever the incentives were for her – to participate in this particular scam, who has not yet heard generally, broadly in society, that you will never be required to pay for something you've won? Like that just seems to me, if, if you're going to win a lottery, if you're going to win a sweepstakes. It seems like an odd thing to fall for. It is because. But it must work because well, she's probably work. not the only one who fell for it right. or they so, wouldn't be using it. Right. And so here's the amazing thing that that architecture of that particular vulnerability, that threat, has been around for a long time. I mean, it's just a, a form of essentially um, dangling something and, and well, it, incrementally it, it, taking, the, the, fleecing the, them. Uh, the prince, it's the, the prince who's trapped in, in Africa, right? It's, could be, you know, or, I need or you try to this. pay my bail and then I'll right. give you half my fortune. Or it's the carnival game, right? So you're right, well, going yeah, go to spend toss, money to make money. make money. Right. So there yeah. you go. So but we all should understand that these are not new concepts. If you have to pay to play, then it's not a lottery and it's not a sweepstakes and you're not a winner. So why? Because it's coming through a technical. So the interesting thing is that disintermediation of judgment because it's coming through the internet is causing basic ideas. So if the person was on the street corner and having this conversation, they'd be able to spot the scam. But right. the fact that they're disintermediated and that they're looking at it through a screen and a keyboard suddenly seems to make them more vulnerable and their judgments. So, so again, back to psychology, what can we do to remove that as a factor? What can we do to explain to people? And I don't know what the answer so is yet, but I'm working I've on it. I've kind of because- been having a conversation with students about what happens when you're, when communications technologically mediated. Mm-hmm. And, and it hit me when I was writing. Um, so I'm writing a book right now, you know that, yep. um, I was working on the chapter on personalities and I got to the dark triad. And one of the things I read, because I was looking at how personality impacts our perception of information and then our processing of information and, and, and so how that plays into decision-making because, so for example, if you've ever taken a Myers-Briggs test and you score introverted versus extroverted, introverted people tend to approach the world from inside their head, extroverted people approach it from outside and experiential. Um, If you are intuitive, you tend to process abstract ideas and thoughts and and things that way first. If you're a sensor, you tend to be collecting constant data with with your eyes, ears, and your five senses. Um, Psychopathy, one of the the things that happens with psychopathy that they identified information processing-wise is that the reason there's a lack of empathy is that and this is this is a couple of studies that in there and so this is emerging. Yeah. Um and when I say psychopathy I don't mean the psychopath who's a not, serial not, killer. Yeah, I not mean, psychosis, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So psychopathy an absence abnormal, of right. empathy. Right. right mm-hmm. An abnormal absence of empathy. Right. 
What they've found is that in the brain, the ability to integrate multiple pieces of data being sent to them that they're perceiving doesn't happen. Hmm. And so if you think about when you and I are sitting across the table from each other, we're making eye contact, we have body language, we have facial expression, we have tone, all of this different data is communicated to you. And and that's what allows us to feel empathy um, because we're connecting with another person and we're not just hearing the words. And so it occurred to me that once you technologically mediate something, that data is not available. Um, It might be, some of it might be available, but even on Zoom, which is technologically mediated, that data is it's imperfect. confused sure. because, mm-hmm. you know, someone might be trying to make eye contact <clears throat> and so they're looking at the middle of their screen and instead of at their camera and right. then it looks like they're not making eye contact so it doesn't right. feel right. the same. And I think a large piece of what happens in technological mediation is that our empathy is lost partly because we're missing a ton of feedback that we normally get when we're in a face-to-face conversation. And and this has been well studied in the context of online cyberbullying, because Mm -hmm. we know that the words remain hurtful, hurtful, Mm -hmm. but we have studied um, particularly teenagers who would not say the same thing if they were present across Mm -hmm. from the individual for the reason you just talked about, but will write it impersonally as if it wasn't hurtful. So, Mm -hmm. so that that's a disassociative effect and and because the technology removes that empathy, but let's go back to an interesting idea. So let's extend not just the concept of empathy, but judgment. So what would have caused this victim to have a similar reduction in their judgment about risk yeah. because that's what's happening. So, well, so the decrease so in the empathy is one thing. thing the so. same thing that impacts your ability to perceive and feel empathy would also right. impact your ability to perceive and risk. experience risk. I agree. From the person you're there's across the connection. from. Yeah, there's and, the connection. And so that's where I was headed with, <laughs> with what I brought that up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's a big piece of what happens when you when you look at stuff in in. In cyberspace. Another interesting topic for us to research and write about together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are getting towards the end of our, our time oh, here for this, this flew one. flew by. You're so going to have to come you. back for another one. Because, I will. Uh, Always a delight. It's fun to sit and pontificate with you as, Me too. as usual. I love right. it. Well, thank you so much for being here, James. Welcome. Anything you want to leave our listeners with related to CyberCon IQ? Nope. Just good the, news you want to share? Anything? No, they can keep track of us if you're interested. There's lots of um, free resources and uh, cool stuff at cyberconiq.com. So feel free to visit us. And if you ever want to find me, that's how you can find me. So All go right. ahead and stay safe out there. All right. And, and when we get into cybersecurity, we are always in the VUCA mountains. So climb out of your canoe, face <laughs> up your boots, and use your paddle as a walking stick. We'll see you next time on Cybercon, <laughs> Cybercon IQ on WMD. Yeah, great. Take care. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to WMD, Weapons of Mass Disruption podcast. This podcast is produced by Dr. Tamara Schwartz and edited by me, Chris Perez. All rights reserved to Dr. Tamara Schwartz, and you may access this podcast free of charge on any of your preferred platforms or by visiting us at lamrai.com. That is L-L-A-M-R-A-I.com.